Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to the Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into the Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Well, church, this morning we pick up where we left off last week. Last week we started a multi-series message called The Gospel According to Abraham. And last week we were in chapter 11, verse 27 through verse 9 of chapter 12, where we saw God reaching into history and really begin uh, start a, a new start, uh, you know, like he did back with Noah in uh, you know, chapter 9. He's reaching into history, into human history for a new start, and that new start consisted of a new call upon a man by the name of Abram, who we're just calling Abraham because his name will be changed later on in, in future chapters. There was this new call upon Abraham and a new covenant that is alluded to, and, and the foundations are, are put before us in chapter 12, and then this new claim that Abraham makes upon the land of Palestine on behalf of God. We particularly paid attention to a verse in chapter 12, verse 7, which says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. One of the reasons why we are in this theme for the year of by faith is to make sure that foundations are either being laid in our lives as disciples of Christ for the first time well or being built back up and restored and confirmed perhaps in some cases where that needs to be done. I'll give you, this is a good example. You know, I was, I like many of you, and I know this is the case for many of you, we were raised in churches and doctrinal systems. Uh, I went to Christian churches, good churches, a, a Christian college, a seminary, where this verse in Genesis 12 and other verses in 13, 15, and 17 of the book of Genesis were used to justify a teaching that, you know, as Americans, we must always, you know, side with the nation of Israel. You know, if you curse the nation of Israel, God will curse you. If you bless it, you'll bless it. So as a nation, we must bless the nation of Israel. We must always side with the nation of Israel because this promise is for the nation of Israel, to, to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. And, and this is one, just one example of how really false ideas seep into the church, how verses are taken out of context and build up ideas and doctrines that aren't supported with the rest of Scripture. 
Um, you know, what's happened in our churches today is we have forgotten a little simple, basic statement of biblical in, in, uh, interpretation. I'm going to try to see if I can say it right. I sometimes get my words uh, twisted on this one, but it's a good one. Ready? Here you go. In the Old Testament, we have the New Testament concealed. In the New Testament, we have the Old Testament revealed. Let me say that again. In the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. We have the gospel concealed. In the New Testament, we have the Old Testament revealed. And this is a good example of that because when you go to the New Testament, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7 is interpreted for us. And it does not mean the nation of Israel at all. In fact, we see in in Galatians chapter 3, Paul interpreting the verse. He quotes it. He uses it. He tells us what God meant. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And he'll go on and say, because we are united in Christ, we too are now the offspring of Abraham, and he is our father. And so we are spiritually Jews and Israelites because of this. See, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. We look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament to have our faith built and established. Now, last week, we did draw some comparisons between Abraham's call and our call. And we saw some similarities. And in both cases, God's call is both radical and gracious at the same time, right? Gracious because Abraham was a pagan. And like us, he was born corrupted and radically, thoroughly corrupted by sin. He did not earn God's call upon his life just as we don't earn it. And yet he received it because God is a God of grace. It's also radical. It's radical because it demands the complete commitment of our lives, a wholehearted commitment and surrender of self to Jesus Christ. As Jesus says, take up the cross, follow me, be willing to leave your father, mother, brothers, sisters, family, but know that I'll give you much more in return when you follow me. It's a radical, gracious call. Abraham receives it. We receive it. Very strong similarities there. But if we're honest, it's hard to really think of ourselves in the same class as Abraham, isn't it? I mean, you just think it's Abraham, right? I mean, we sing songs about him in children's show, Father Abraham, I mean, you know? I mean, the, what God did through him is just it's enormous, right? And so it's hard for us to, to even think of ourselves in the same family or comparison or anything like, because that's Abraham and there's us, right? And that's why we're not gonna skip the rest of chapter 12. Because chapter 12 helps us to understand that our father Abraham was much more like us than what we may automatically think. You know, if in the first part of this, we see God doing a new start, the rest of chapter 12 shows us a faith compromised, a compromised faith. So let's look at four gospel applications from the passage this morning. First of all, after a season of spiritual growth, of kingdom advancement, our faith is vulnerable to temptation and testing. It starts out in, in, in chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Remember what Abram had done, right? He had left all of his security blankets behind. He had left Ur. He had left Haran. He left his family. He left his career and his business. He left with his wife, uh, some extended family, and he goes to a land that God says, I'll show you, which ends up being Canaan. 
what we know as Palestine or Israel. He comes into this country, it's filled with pagan, violent people, strong cities, different nation and tribal groups, and he goes from north to south, and he begins to build altars in worship to God. In fact, he goes to places that were known for the worship of the pagan deities, and in those very locations, he builds altars, and he worships Jehovah in these sites. He's boldly staking a claim upon Palestine and upon Canaan for the one true God, Jehovah. This is a mountaintop experience. God has answered the prayers. God has fulfilled what he said he would do. He has shown him the land that is to become his inheritance. Incredible step of faith, an act of faith by Abraham. And then he experiences something that God's people through the millennia can all relate to. After a mountaintop experience, it is very likely that you will then be tested and tempted in the valley. And this is what happens here. He goes from a mountaintop experience to the valley of trial. There's now a famine in the land. He's tested. Is he going to trust God? And he has a lot of mouths to feed. So this is a huge test. The original audience, they can understand this. In fact, this story is really a good one for them because they're on the banks of the Jordan River. As Randy Pope said a couple of weeks ago, they're going to be entering into the promised land and they come to Jericho. They have a massive mountaintop experience where the whole city falls before them and they don't have to do anything. God just works miraculously through them, obeying and living by faith, and they just walk around the city seven days in a row, and the walls fall down. A strong city that had been there for thousands of years is defeated, and God just shows his power through the people of Israel. What a mountaintop experience. And the next pages of the Bible is the valley of testing, and they lose it to a little town called Ai. And they experience horrendous defeat and dismay. So they understood what this is all about. Christians throughout the ages have had it. People of God throughout, I mean, think about it. When do we first see Noah passed out drunk? After the deliverance and all the work of the ark that had been done and how God had used him for the preservation of humanity, the next scene, he's passed out drunk. Right? When do you see Elijah emotionally depressed in despair, having suicidal thoughts. It was after the mountaintop experience of destroying the priest of Baal and calling down fire from heaven and God does these miraculous things through him on the heels of that mountaintop experience. You find him depressed and suicidal. When do you see Solomon slide into gross immorality and the things that would end up marking his life. It was after that experience of God moving him and using him to build this magnificent temple to him. When do you see Jonah angry and you know, in despair and, and accusing God? It's after the revival of Nineveh. How about Peter? When do you see his denial of Jesus Christ? After right on the heels of the Garden of Gethsemane, where in the, in the face of troops and soldiers and everyone else, he steps forward, pulls his sword, tries to lop off a guy's head, defending Jesus and standing up for Jesus. And right on the heels of that bold declaration of who he was, 
He's challenged by a little girl and he denies Jesus three times. This happens in our lives. After a time of spiritual victory, after a time of maybe kingdom growth or kingdom advancement that we get to participate in and God uses us in some way, after those types of occasions, watch out, church, expect a time of testing. Expect it. Dr. Warren Wearsby says it succinctly, tests follow triumphs. Tests follow triumphs. Why is this the case? Why does God work like this? Why does he permit the test or even actively bring the test into our lives? Because he knows that a faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. So he tests it. Peter tells us that one that I just mentioned a few moments ago, right, about testings of our faith, that the reason why God does these types of tests in our lives is to reveal the quality of our faith, and in actuality, to show us the impurities, the dross, the tests of our faith is God's gracious way of showing us there's a lot more that has to happen here, guys. We're not done yet. There's still things that have to take place. Because if a faith is to be trusted, it must be tested. And those testings reveal the impurities that are there. Second application, in times of testing, we will be tempted to change uh, the, our object of faith. Let me go back to that. There we go. Oh, there we go. So there was a famine in the land. And the Bible tells us, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, i got a question for you. I'm going to give you 10 seconds to share your answer with the person sitting near you, okay? Here's the question. It says, Abram went down to Egypt. Now, here's the question. Do you think it was sinful and wrong for Abraham to go down to Egypt. Yes or no? Turn to the person next to you. You got 10 seconds. Share your answer. All right. How many of you, raise your hand, if you said no, it was not a sin? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you said yes, it was a sin? Okay. Okay, a lot of you didn't raise your hand. Come on. You're ruining my illustration. Right? All right, how many of you said yes, it was a sin? All right, that's a little better. Okay. Most of you said yes, it was a sin. You know, on the one hand, going down to Egypt is clearly sinful. It's identified with uh, spiritual compromise. It's identified with corruption and trusting the world. You find, for example, in the book of Isaiah, God saying, ah, stop, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not my plan, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. He says in chapter 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 
You gotta wonder how the original audience would have responded when they heard that their ancestor of faith went down to Egypt when they had just exited from there after 400 years of slavery. You gotta wonder, what what were you thinking, Abraham, to go to Egypt? Don't you understand what that means? You see, Egypt in the Bible often represents false gods, false religion. It it, it was the country that enslaved God's people. It was the country like Babel that epitomized self-worship and self-reliance and making monuments to the religion of self and self-creation. But those of you who said, no, it's not a sin, you might have been thinking of the fact that in a few chapters... Jacob, the patriarch, is going to go down to Egypt, and God sent Joseph there to prepare for all that, and Jacob and all of the ancestors of Abraham go down, and they they receive sustenance during this severe famine. Maybe you were thinking of that, and that's why you said, nope, not sin, or maybe even you were thinking of Jesus, where God gave Joseph a vision and said, hey, Herod is going to begin to, to persecute and murder children, boy children, take Jesus down to Egypt and live there until I tell you to come home because it's safe there. So some of you might have said, no, it's not a sin because you got some examples like that. It's a logical decision, right? Uh, They have food. The Nile River, it's pretty consistent. Normally, Egypt didn't experience these types of things. So maybe it was a logical right decision. I got to tell you, I don't think that's the case here. Um, I think that what was happening was Abraham was experiencing a crisis of faith, and he ends up compromising. And, And the reason why I believe this is obviously because of what else is in this chapter and what's not in this chapter. So for example, God told Joseph to go down to Egypt. Jacob was clearly led by God to go to Egypt. You don't read any of that here with Abraham. I mean, we can understand what's happening here. His faith is being tested and he responds in the way that so many of us will often respond by changing our object of faith, right? We, uh, rather than waiting on God and trusting in him, we'll trust in ourselves and our own plans. Rather than trusting in what is invisible and spiritual, we can only see the visible and the physical and make decisions upon that. What does the data say? Well, that, that tells us this, that's what we should do. Here we are. And that's our only factor. Or we trust in human wisdom instead of divine providence. And here's a big one. We trust in our own schemes, our own planning, instead of God's will and God's wisdom. And church, when we do this, when we trust in ourselves, when we trust in our plans, when we trust in our wisdom, our schemes, the physical instead of the spiritual, what ends up happening is the deepest idolatries of our hearts end up being revealed. The true allegiances of our heart bubble to the surface. That's what happens. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, in a chapter that really you can see lived out with the story of Abraham with our own lives. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation, no trial, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Listen, on the, on the heels of every type of season of spiritual growth, of kingdom advancement, the danger and what ends up happening, and I know I've seen it in my own life, is you can become passive in your spiritual walk. You can become satisfied with where you are. You can even become spiritually a little proud. Think too highly of yourself. And, and that pride that sets in, that passivity that sets in, that is you know, revealing what's truly going on in our lives. And so Paul says, hey, be careful that you don't think too highly of yourselves. Now listen, testing is going to come along. How do we go through those testings? By creating our own plans, by looking at it and saying, hey, you know, I think that here's, a, no, by taking the path that God puts before us. A test doesn't begin and end with just looking at the physical data and then making your plans. It includes looking at those types of things, but it's always submitting it to God in prayer, looking for His guidance and His wisdom and His uh, in input into what we are to do. I remember a few years ago, a young man came to me and he had an opportunity before him. And he said, I have this opportunity. And he had all, he, he had put a lot of thought into it. He had spreadsheets galore, right? Uh, he, had, he had mapped it out. He had numbers. He had everything there, right? And he says, I have it all. And he says, and what it's telling me to do is it's telling me to do X. But I'm just not sure that I should do X. What do you think? And so we looked at it, and I began to pray. And I said, you know, I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to give you an answer, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick out at least three other elders or deacons in our church, and I want you to have this same conversation with them and ask them to pray for another week, and let's just see where we all end up, right? Data said, do it. Here's what was interesting. All four of us, for some reason in our hearts, we just said, just, I don't know why, but I don't think you should do this. <laughs> There's something about it here. I think we don't know something that's going on. Maybe that's what it is. The young man didn't do it, and, and sure enough, he, he, took, he, took, he followed the counsel. He just waited. It, it was the best decision he ever did. He ended up, he was, it was a job situation, a house situation. Within about six months, God had changed everything. Not only did he have a different job, it was in a different location, with better, better everything, the housing market at that time also went down. <laughs> so, you know, if he had bought, he'd have been upside down on his house. And it was, it was clearly by just waiting on God and taking the counsel of godly people and praying over it and not letting the beginning and the end just say, well, I think this is what I should do. This looks like the right path to me. Let's do it. And he backed up and God rewarded that. Paul says, listen, wait on God. He has a way of escape from your temptation. And why do we do this? Why do we go about it this way? Because of idolatry. Idolatry is the danger here. In any type of a test, when we're tested, the, the true temptation is not the surface sin. The true temptation is whether or not we will change the object of our faith. Will we now trust in the substance to give us deliverance from this test? Will we now trust in this person? Will we now trust in this job? Will we now trust in this political party? Will we now trust, what are you, you fill in the blank, 
But all of those things are simply ways for us to change our allegiance from God to a false God. And this is idolatry. And so the tests reveal our deeper idolatries. It gives us insight into who we really are. Gives us insight into how desperately we need God's sustaining, restoring grace. Unfortunately, when we change the object of our faith and we trust in ourselves or we trust in something other than God, it doesn't end there. There's always fallout. There's always consequences to those kinds of decisions. And that's our third uh, application this morning. Faith compromises always lead to more sin and heartache. When he was about to enter Egypt, verse 11 tells us, Abram said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Let's just stop right there and note that Abraham was a smooth operator. (laughs) He even gets it put in the infallible word of God that his wife was beautiful. How many brownie points does he get for that one? Anyway, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the verses. Let me summarize what happens here, okay? But, but, what's, but right away, we can see what's happening is that Abraham is doing something that many of us can be, that are probably, you know, we, we, resume, we know what he's doing there. When you take the matters into your own hands, right? When you do what is right in your own eyes, you know what you always have to do as a result of that? Contingency planning. <laughs> he's contingency planning here, right? He does not have a clear word from God that this is what I'm going to do. So he's made a choice. I guarantee you, I bet, I bet money that at night Abraham was saying, okay, if I'm going to go down to Egypt, what do I need to do to make this work? I probably ought to get my guys some more sword training. It's a hard journey down there, and we need to brush up on our skills in case we get attacked. And, and now I bet we probably got, and, oh, hey, what am I going to do about my wife, Sarah? You know, we get down there. I mean, these powerful guys of Egypt, I mean, she's a looker, right? And, and they could take her from me. So, hmm, how am I going to do that if that happens? You ever done that? You ever done scenario A? Now, if scenario A happens, this is what I'm going to do. If scenario B happens, this is what I'm going to do. Now, if, if scenario C is what happens, we'll do this. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with planning, but what you find is that when you begin to go down the road, of, of doing what you think is right and you're trusting yourself or you're trusting something other than just God, you find yourself having to do crazy kinds of contingency planning in case the worst happens, in case I'm wrong, okay? Now, maybe y'all have never done that, but I have a PhD in it, okay? And it's the result of sin. So he, he creates this scheme, this scheme. You're my sister. By the way, <clears throat> She was, kind of. She was his half-sister, right? The Bible tells, tells us this. And back in those days, that was not uncommon, and that was accepted. And she was his half-sister. But that's not the case here. I mean, the case here isn't that he was really telling the truth, you know. He's basically doing it, you know, it's, it depends on what your definition of is is. That's what he's doing here, right? Which is all 100% untruth. He's deceiving them. 
by saying something that is partially, that it's maybe factually true, but he's saying it in a way that, that leads them to believe elsewhere. Sure enough, he gets down there, they see Sarai, she's beautiful. The powerful men even go to Pharaoh and say, you need to, this gal, wow. Okay, and of course, Abraham, he's, he's obviously an up and comer in the political spectrum of Canaan. So, so Pharaoh naturally says, hey, this is a good deal. I get a brother-in-law <clears throat> who's in Canaan now and Egypt would fight a lot of wars through the years in Canaan. And so, yeah, okay, I got a guy here who's my right, my brother-in-law. We have a political alliance and I have this beautiful woman, his sister to be my wife. This, this is a good deal, right? Except it wasn't. See, whenever we change the object of our, of our faith and we enter into idolatry, there's fallout. Not just to us, but to people near us, family, and people around us. In this case, for example, you'll, you'll see that the, the riches, all these riches that Pharaoh gives to Abram, they come up again in chapter 13. All the riches that he gets become the seed of contention between him and Lot. And, and Lot has watched his uncle Abraham and his whole decision-making process. So when he has to make a decision, what does he do? He does like Uncle Abraham. He chooses the, the lush safety of Sodom and Gomorrah. How'd that work out? Okay. So the seeds of much of chapter 13's conflict happen, occur in, are planted in Egypt. And then, of course, poor Pharaoh, right? All of a sudden, they have a plague in this country. And we don't know what the plague is, but it's apparently pretty not, not good. And so as a result, he, he does some digging and he finds out what Abraham has done. Abraham is fortunate to escape without losing his life. He, he gets banished from Egypt. He gets kicked out of the country. So now he's right back to where he was before, back in the land of famine. Faith compromises, church, always lead to more sin and heartache. Parents, when you make decisions that are opposite of God's word, when you make decisions according to your own plans and your own schemes and what you may think is right, and they haven't been submitted to God and they haven't been soaked in prayer and they haven't been compared to his word and you haven't sought out God, you haven't, you haven't followed that path that God gives us in his word on how to make wise, good decisions, right? And you do it sometimes, I mean, it's just, a, this is a no-brainer. This is a no-brainer decision. Do you know almost every time I have come to a major decision in my life, this is just a no-brainer. This is obvious. I was wrong. It was obvious, and it was obviously wrong. Because God knew things I didn't know. Right? And parents, whenever we do this, we pass on to our children an example. They feel the fallout of our sin, no matter what it may be. Our coworkers feel the fallout and the consequences when we shift the object of our faith from God to our career, to whatever it may be. The people in our community, our church, feels the fallout and the consequences when we change the object of our worship from God to whatever it may be and we live in a way in the community that's opposite of the gospel. Do you think that the public's understanding of the gospel and church stops with you and me and my personal sin? No, it, it spreads and the whole church gets splattered with it. The consequences are always more than just personal. But here's the good news in this passage, final application this morning. In all of this, God graciously works. 
And God graciously overcomes our compromised faith, and he draws us back to where we belong. This is how this story ends, and it's a beautiful ending. Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had in Lot, he returned to Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So things didn't quite work out the way Abram thought in Egypt. He makes a decision to go and trust in Egypt, and it ends bad. It could have ended a lot worse, but God graciously intervenes. He constrained the fallout and the consequences of Abraham's sin. He could have been killed. He wasn't. He could have been enslaved. He wasn't. Pharaoh just kicks him out. And he even lets him keep all of the silver and gold and the camels and the donkeys and the whole listing that's in. I mean, he left Egypt a very rich man, but as we pointed out, there was consequences there. But God was gracious to Abraham. He returns him right back to where he had been when he was first considering, what should I do? It's an interesting place. He was located between Bethel and Ai. The word Bethel means the house of God. The word Ai means ruin. (laughs) That's where Abraham was. He was between ruin and the house of God with a trial of faith. And God brings him right back to that same place where he was tested. But this time, Abram has learned a lesson. And the scriptures show that he returns to worshiping and calling upon the name of the Lord and trusting him. And he stays here until God moves him somewhere else later in the book of Genesis. Equally important is that as much as God constrained the fallout of Abraham's sin, and Abraham learned an important lesson about God and his grace. It's a lesson that I hope that all of us hold deeply in our hearts. It's a lesson that I delight in. Despite our faithlessness, God is always faithful. Amen? Even when we change the object of our faith, even when we take matters in our own hands because we think we know better than God and there's consequences and fallout from that, when we, when we return, we repent, we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and all unrighteousness. And he welcomes us back and he draws us in and he's faithful to us. The children of Israel need to hear this. As I mentioned, AI, ruin, will become literally their life story. They will experience ruin at AI when they cross the Jordan River and they just do things the way they think they should do it and they don't consult God. And it brings ruin. But in that same story of Joshua, remember the entire book begins in chapter one with God telling Joshua and the people of Israel, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I do not turn my back on my people. So people of God, this is the wonderful news of the gospel here in the Old Testament concealed, further revealed in the New Testament because we're in Christ. God can be gracious to us. You know, imagine for just a moment 
how this aspect of Abraham's story is our story. How many times do we change the allegiance of our hearts? We, we, we follow some other God for a moment, and, and, and would God just be justified in saying, you know what, I'm done with you? I mean, if, if I was God, after, I, you know, Jerry Clem had done it for the 1,000th time, I said, you know, 999 times, dude, I gave you a break, but this time, forget it. I'm done with you. Aren't you glad that God is never done with us? He's never done with us. He works. And in fact, not only is he not done with us, this is how God, gracious God is. He works through our sin and our idolatry, and he draws us back to himself to that place of worship. And then somehow, miraculously, he actually takes that faithlessness of ours and down the road, he redeems it into something that he uses to expand his kingdom and bring glory to himself. Now, how cool is that? That's how gracious God is. That the, in many cases, the failure that we experience in our Christian walk becomes the seedbeds of blessings in years to come for someone else as God redeems us. Only God can do that. Only God can be gracious like that. And how is it that he can be gracious like that to us, to Abraham? Very simply, it's because we are united to the one person, Jesus, who when he was tempted and tried and went into the valley of testing, he did not change his object of faith. He stayed loyal. You find in Matthew chapter 4, Satan taking Jesus out into the wilderness, tempting him with food. You're hungry, right? Abraham was hungry. Jesus, you're hungry. Why don't you just take these stones and turn them into bread? And Jesus does not give in to the temptation. You want fame and security, Abraham. Jesus, how about you? And look at what, look what the devil does. He says, takes him to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This can all be yours. All this I will give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Why can God be gracious to us, Christian? It's because we are united with the one who did not fail and never failed the test. We're united to the one. When he went before his Pharaoh in John chapter 18, and he was confronted and asked questions, he didn't resort to schemes. He simply said what was true. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Here's your test. Will you equivocate? Will you half-truth it? Well, you know, metaphorically, yes, but you know, not. will you weasel your way out of it? Jesus answered, you are right and saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me, and in that moment of testing and truth, it condemns him to the cross. But in that condemnation to the cross where he dies, he bears our sins, and we receive his righteousness and are united to him, and therefore God can be gracious to us. In those moments, when we are weak and we change 
our object of faith. Dear Jesus, thank you for being faithful to your test so that you could be faithful to us when we are faithless in our test. Thank you for standing in our place and taking the punishment that was due to, uh, that was due to our sin. Thank you for giving us your righteousness. Heavenly Father, would you build our faith? God, we are tempted, even as a church, when we face opportunities as a church, it's so easy for us to just look at it from the perspective of man's wisdom and man's logic and the data before us and make a, a purely physical, logical, rational decision. And sometimes that it may work out okay, but Father, it's still not okay because we're not in submission to you. Help us as a church and as your people to submit everything to you, to have that peace in our hearts that the course of action we're about to take is the right one. Lord, these tests come in small and large ways. Give us the grace that we need to pray and submit even the small things to you. So easy to do it when it's a life-changing moment. But those daily moments that happen over and over again, give us the grace we need to submit to you, to hear from you, to walk according to your guidance through your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.